0: Thank you, shock troops. Uh, As Calvin and Heidi and Amanda and uh, Austin. Uh, thank you. Did you notice in Jehoshaphat's story there that they were the shock troops? They sent the praise team out in front, ringing that cowbell or whatever they had. Yes, praise God. Thank you. And Psalm 100 says, Come before him with joyful songs. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Praise is key. Especially in those hard times when you don't feel like it, you choose to praise God, and He gives victory. Praise God. Our message the unfairness of injustice and God's impending response. Surprised by a shoulder slide, in a chaotic world where change seems to be accelerating and institutions and relationships disappoint, the sureness and steadfastness of God's character provides assurance and hope. Our big idea today is amidst the slick of human fickleness, God's faithful care gives sure footing. Recently, I had anything but sure footing. Most of you know I've been riding a motorcycle in the summer for a couple of years now. I'm glad to see Rob brought his. it's out there beside mine today. My confidence has been building with each successive ride. But not long ago, I had an abrupt wake-up call that I needed to pay more attention. I was riding my Yamaha 950 V-Star towards her home, and I noticed the flag was up on our mailbox. Oh, no problem, I thought, I'll just stop to catch the mail on the way by. I'd done it many times before, putting the bike in neutral and using both hands to fetch the mail and close the lid like you do. However, as I slowed and signaled and moved to the right of the highway towards our mailbox, I failed to notice the grater had recently been by and touched up the gravel on the shoulder so it was even again with the pavement surface. No sooner had my wheels touched the shoulder than the back end of the bike slid out from under me as the rear wheels swam freely in about three inches of loose gravel. Overwent the bike and embarrassed was the rider. I felt like a newbie all over again. Thankfully, I had already slowed and the foot platforms prevented the bike from laying down completely, so no injury or damage was done. But... As I picked the bike up, I was reminded to pay closer attention to changing surfaces beneath me. As we delve into the 12th chapter of the prophet Jeremiah, we find him experiencing the fickleness and even threat of a society that's loose in morals, not gravel. It's a culture of deceit and lies, where he can no longer trust his own townspeople or his own family. There's no sure footing when it comes to the relationships he formerly felt safe in. Chapter 9, 4-6 to 6 describes this shifty people thus. Beware of your friends. Do not trust your brothers. For every brother is a deceiver and every friend a slanderer. Friend deceives friend and no one speaks the truth. They have taught their tongues to lie. They weary themselves with sinning. You live in the midst of deception. In their deceit, they refuse to acknowledge me, declares the Lord. Jeremiah finds he needs to put his faith in God when others around him are so deceptive and creative in lying. While Jan, who was 35 years old, was visiting her mother, they went for a walk and bumped into the pastor. Is this your daughter, he asked. Oh, my, I remember her when she was this high. Without pausing, Jan's mother said, Well, she's 24 now. Jan nearly fainted on the spot. Remember, she was actually 35. After everyone had said their goodbyes, Jan asked her mother why she told such a whopper. Well, she replied, I've been lying about my age for so long, it just suddenly dawned on me I'd have to start lying about yours, too. Deceit kind of expands out of necessity, doesn't it? Dare to pray your wise. Let's turn our attention to chapter 12 of Jeremiah. Last week we were in chapter 8. We find in chapter 9 and 10 more details about the actual sins of the people of Judah that were soon to bring judgment upon them. This is after 625 BC and Jerusalem was destroyed, town Anathoth, are plotting against him. It sounds serious. They're saying 1121, Do not prophesy in the name of the Lord, or you will die by our hands. Kind of sounds like a clear threat to me. Chapters 11 and 12 contain sections described as Jeremiah's confessions or complaints. They're very personal, informally worded sections in which Jeremiah spills to God exactly what's on his heart, what he's most worried about. This suggests we can dare to pray our whys to God. The Lord has broad shoulders, so to speak, and can tolerate us being our most honest and frank when we bring our concerns to him. Listen to the whys and how long Jeremiah 12, 1 4. I would speak with you about your justice why does the way of the wicked prosper why do all the faithful faithless live at ease how long will the land lie parched and the grass in every field be withered several of the psalms share this questioning nature there are laments puzzling and grieving over downturns and calamities that have befallen the psalmist in many cases the psalm resolves by ending in recalling God's faithfulness through rough spots in the past, but not always. For example, Psalm 88. Don't hold back in your prayer time when you need to spill it all before the Lord. You're not going to surprise him by telling him something he doesn't already know. Jesus urged us, Matthew 6 6, but when you pray, go into your room. Close the door and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Psalm 62.8 tells us, Trust in Him at all times, O people. Pour out your hearts to Him, for God is our refuge. And Lamentations 2.8 advises, Pour out your heart like water in the presence of the Lord. He wants us to be completely open and honest with him. Why bother to pray? There wouldn't be much point in praying if God's character weren't one anchored in justice and righteousness and faithfulness. Notice how Jeremiah leads into his why and how long, questioning at the very start of chapter 12, He says, you are always righteous, O Lord, when I bring a case before you. Yet I would speak with you about your justice. Jeremiah endured through some four or more difficult decades of moral slide and resulting disaster for the southern kingdom of Judah. It must have been very discouraging and depressing for him, including to have those threats made on your life. But his faith in God's righteousness helped him not to give up. He believed that justice and righteousness were at the very core of God's being. Jeremiah could count on God to make things work out right. Some good verses to memorize are Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. This is what the Lord says. Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom, or the strong man boast of his strength, or the rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts boast about this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth, for in these I delight, declares the Lord. What do you boast about? How smart you are, how strong you are, how rich you are? Those can all be taken away from us. No, scripture tells us to boast in knowing and being familiar with the Lord because of his being quintessentially kind and just and righteous. That should be our primary point of reference, not our own flimsy resources or gifts. Our big idea today, amidst the slick of human fickleness, God's faithful care gives sure footing. We can be buoyed up in the seas of stress by casting our cares on Him. First Peter 5.7 Cast all your anxiety on Him because He cares for you. But in our noisy culture, we need to carve out time for prayer and to be quiet enough before God to hear our soul cries and His reassuring response. Back in 1956, Billy Graham wrote, America seems to be pleasure mad. We have to be amused morning, noon, and night. Television is making a tremendous change in America's spiritual sensitivity. I've had pastor after pastor write me and tell me that he can see the difference in the spiritual life of his congregation since television came. People have to be amused, and we do not have time for thought, meditation, prayer, and godly pursuits as we used to, end quote. And that was Billy Graham back in 1956. Television was just coming into its own. We had three channels, two of which were identical. Now we have the internet and social media and podcasts and on and on. But the prayer lines remain open. You just need to pause long enough to approach the throne of grace. Next section, evil's invasive effects. Jeremiah is bothered by seeing the wicked prosper. It's upsetting to him to see the faithless live at ease, verse 1. We've mentioned the culture of deceit, how lying with one's tongue was becoming an art form. Jeremiah 9, 8. Their tongue is a deadly arrow, it speaks with deceit. With his mouth, each speaks cordially to his neighbor, but in his heart, he sets a trap for him. This lying in their speech even extends to their religious services. Verse 2. You have planted them, and they have taken root. They grow and bear fruit. You are always on their lips, but far from their hearts. Hmm. What about us? When we're singing in church, do we just kind of mouth the words and think about what we're having for lunch, or do we really mean the lyrics we're singing? Do we make it our own? Are we simultaneously opening our hearts to let the Lord show us what we need to have brought to our attention? I enjoyed the hymn sing on Senior's Oasis Day this past Monday at Stainer Camp. Some of the hymns were so old they were even new to me. But maybe that made me pay more attention to the actual verses. It's a wonderful sound to hear more than 300 people singing out familiar choruses but it's a continual exercise to consider the meaning of the words and not get sidetracked by details of harmonizing or the appearance of whoever's leading. The worshipers in Jeremiah's day were hypocrites, pretenders, having God on their lips but not their hearts. Pope Francis was in Canada this week apologizing for the way church workers and residential schools had failed to show God's kindness and justice to indigenous families and children. Survivors tell heart wrenching stories of cruelty for such a, a basic thing as speaking their native language. Today, we say we love God, but do we recognize and respect the imago Dei, the image of God, the Creator, in those of other races? Or do we still feel we're a bit superior because we were white and speak English? Is it easier to be genuinely neighborly with those who are like us? Our elders approved helping with the immigration initiative of Huron County and welcoming Ukrainian refugees by providing winter clothing for a family. Such acts of kindness and generosity offset charges of hypocrisy, saying one thing but doing another. Evil permeates a society when unrestrained and has far-reaching consequences. Jeremiah makes a connection between the wickedness of people and its effects environmentally. See verse 4. How long will the land lie parched and the grass in every field be withered? Because those who live in it are wicked, the animals and birds have perished. Hmm. Why have the creatures perished? Because... Those who live in it are wicked. Look at also at verses 10 and 11. Many shepherds will ruin my vineyard and trample down my field. They'll turn my pleasant field into a desolate wasteland. It will be made a wasteland, parched and desolate before me. The whole land will be laid waste because there is no one who cares. Because no one cares here in NIV, NRSV has, but no one lays it to heart. Either way, there's apathy. The environment is suffering, desolate, yet people just don't seem to give two hoots. I'm far from being an environmental activist, but the signs of climate change are getting harder to ignore. Extreme temperatures in Europe this summer have been drastic. When I was young, we used to have to hoe the milkweed because it was so prevalent almost annually, you could easily find a monarch butterfly caterpillar, feed it leaves in a container and watch it spin a chrysalis then emerge as a beautiful butterfly ready for its long migration. Now monarchs are being added to the endangered species list. Hmm. How can we steward our environment better in a way that does not result in the extinction of animals and birds and other wildlife? Is that Being greedy for gain, we talked about last week, brought deadly effects for other species. Jeremiah seems to see a connection here between human sinning and their suffering. One small example from Thursday's news concerning an oil and gas compressor operation in the southern states. says, the Mako station was observed releasing an estimated 870 kilograms of methane an extraordinarily potent greenhouse gas into the atmosphere each hour. That's the equivalent impact on the climate of burning seven tanker trucks full of gasoline every day. And it was only one of 533 super emitters detected during a 2021 aerial survey. The article notes, there's now nearly three times as much methane in the air than there was before industrial times. Year 2021 saw the worst single increase ever. Methane's earth warming power is some 83 times stronger over 20 years than the carbon dioxide that comes from car tailpipes and power plant smokestacks. End quote. Thankfully, to their credit, some companies are beginning to monitor and repair or upgrade facilities. Next section Pressures God's Preschool. In verse 5, God begins to reply to Jeremiah's complaint about all this prospering of the wicked that he's seeing. The Lord seems to be cautioning the prophet against getting too worked up or discouraged by some opposition. His hometown neighbors and family members are against him now, but he will face heavier weight authorities. Judas King and the royal court. And eventually, Jeremiah will even be advised by officials of Nebuchadnezzar's empire. Jeremiah 12.5. If you have raced with men on foot and they have worn you out, how can you compete with horses? If you stumble in safe country, how will you manage in the thickets by the Jordan? Pressures from opponents are God's preschool. Training opportunities, preparing God's spokesman for later postings. God isn't out to maximize Jeremiah's convenience and comfort. God is out to grow his character. Get him ready for even bigger assignments, more responsibility. Right now, it's local opposition, the neighbors in Anathoth and Jeremiah's family. Verse 6, your brothers, your own family, even they have betrayed you. They have raised a loud cry against you. Do not trust them, though they speak well of you the pervasive deceitfulness again. Jesus' own brothers did not believe he was the Messiah, John 7, 5. Jeremiah is getting a similar rebuff from his kin. But this is a classroom where the Lord is teaching Jeremiah to trust him, that God will preserve his life despite the serious threats. Verse 13 summarizes the comeuppance the wicked will eventually receive. They will reap what they sow. 13. They will sow wheat but reap thorns. They will wear themselves out but gain nothing. So bear the shame of your harvest because of the Lord's fierce anger. Paul reminds the church in Galatians 6-7. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows.
1: God's
0: intimate immensity. Once again, today's big idea, amidst the slick of human fickleness, God's faithful care gives sure footing. Yes, there is human wickedness abounding. People are lying with their tongues. The culture has become so shot through with deceit you can't trust anyone. Even Jeremiah's own family members are apparently plotting against him. But in spite of it all, God's in control. God's going to be protecting the prophet and keep him safe to accomplish God's mission. Treachery abounds. People are trying to trip Jeremiah up with their lies and plotting like a slippery oil slick, but God is faithful and will give him sure footing. Jeremiah has a big view of God, his immensity. Yet Jeremiah also realizes God is very personal and intimate in his dealings with people. For the bigness of Jeremiah's view of God, see 10.6, in the midst of a description of man-made idols. It says, No one is like you, O Lord. You are great and your name is mighty in power. Who should not revere you, O King of the nations? This is your Jew. Among all the wise men of the nations and in all their kingdoms, there is no one like you. Jeremiah recognizes how big God is. The end of chapter 12 even describes how God is concerned with the nations around Israel and will uproot or establish these Gentiles depending on whether they learn his ways and acknowledge him. God is sovereign and concerned about other nations, holding them accountable, not just the Jews. Yet. This righteous, just, almighty God is also kind, loving, caring, intimate. Note the beginning of verse 3 in chapter 12. Yet you know me, O Lord. You see me and test my thoughts about you. Fascinating. God is not so big, so preoccupied with judging the rulers and nations that he does not also see you personally and know you better than your closest friend. He tests your thoughts about him because what you think of him matters greatly to the Lord. We see this intimacy reflected in Jesus teaching his followers to call God our Father, Abba, Papa. This is a heavenly Father who gives good gifts to those who ask him, Matthew 7.11. It just kind of struck me, 7.11. He gives good gifts. Isn't that an appropriate verse reference? God's your 7-Eleven. This Abba, Papa, knows the number of hairs on our head, Matthew ten twenty. Now that's detailed, intimate knowledge. Yes, it's a great big world, at times a scary and unpredictable world. There are plenty of people out there wanting to trip you up and scam you and profit at your expense, kick you to the curb even. But God sees you and knows you. He's got you in his faithful care. The big idea. Amidst the slick of human fickleness, God's faithful care gives sure footing. Last section. Despite the worst ebbs and flows. Helen roosevelt was a British medical missionary in the Congo uprising when the Mau Mau revolutionaries invaded. She was brutally attacked. This pure, godly, gracious, innocent woman of God was raped, assaulted, humiliated, hanging on with her life to a faith that would not be shaken. While recovering from that horrible event, Helen and the Lord grew closer together than they had ever been before. She wrote a statement in the form of a question that every person needs to ask herself or himself. Can you thank me for trusting you with this experience, even if I never tell you why? Again, God's asking, "Can you trust me with this experience? Can you can you thank me for trusting you with this experience, even if I never tell you why?" God's faithful care gives us assurance, even if we never find out the whys for some of our questions and experiences. In closing, here's a prayer by Chuck Swindoll riffing off a quote by Vincent Van Gogh who once said, there's ebb and flow, but the sea remains the sea. There's ebb and flow, but the sea remains the sea. That's a helpful metaphor considering life's ups and downs. Let's pray. Dear Lord, today, I thought of the words of Vincent Van Gogh. It's true that there is an ebb and flow, but the sea remains the sea. You, O God, are the sea. Although I experience many ups and downs in my emotions and often feel great shifts and changes in my inner life, you remain the same. Your sameness is not the sameness of a rock, but the sameness of a faithful lover. I am sustained, and to your love I am always called back. My only real temptation is to doubt your love, to think of myself as beyond your love, to remove myself from the healing radiance of your love. To do these things is to move into the darkness of despair. O Lord, sea of love and goodness, let me not fear too much the storms or winds of my daily life. Let me know that there is ebb and flow, but that the sea remains the sea.